Luke 10, 25 through 37. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor, neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the third key word in this prayer, how Israel is called to love their God. But what does that mean? Love is a very common word in most languages, as it is in ancient Hebrew. It's pronounced ahava. It most basically refers to the kind of affection or care that one person shows another. It sometimes describes physical affection, like the king of Persia's love for Queen Esther. But there are other Hebrew words that more specifically refer to physical desire or sex. Ahava is more broad. So Abraham had ahava for his son Isaac, that's parental love. Jonathan showed ahava for his friend David, that would be brotherly love. In fact, a whole group of people can have ahava for their leader, like when the Israelites showed love for their king David. Ahava can even describe loyalty between political allies, like Hiram, the king of Tyre, loved David. They had good relations, and so Hiram wanted to help David's son Solomon build the temple. These are all different kinds of affection described with the one word, ahava. Now, all of this is helpful for understanding God's ahava in the Old Testament. So in Deuteronomy, Moses told the Israelites, God showed affection for you. He chose you because of his ahava for you. So God doesn't love because the Israelites earned it or deserve it. It simply originates from God's own character. He loves because he loves. This is why Jeremiah can say that God's love is everlasting. It has no end because it has no beginning. God's love just is an eternal fact of the universe. 
God's love is not a duty, it's a genuine feeling, an affection that God experiences. This is why the prophet Hosea compares God's love for his people to a husband's ahava for his wife, or to a parent showing ahava for their child. It's one of the strongest things that God feels. But that doesn't mean that God's love is just a feeling. God's love is also in action. It's something God chooses to do. Like when Moses says, because of God's ahava for your ancestors, he brought you out of Egypt with great power. God's love isn't just a sentiment, it is something God does. And so, in the Shema, Israel is called to respond to God's ahava by showing ahava in return. And just like God's love, human love is to show itself through actions. Like in Deuteronomy 10, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him and serve him and to keep his commands? All of these actions are centered around love. If I'm not doing them, I don't actually love God, I just say I do. Which leads to one last thing. In the Old Testament, I show my love for God by how I treat the people around me. In Deuteronomy, we read that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he shows ahava for the immigrants among you, giving them food and clothing. And so you also show ahava for the immigrant. So the people are to imitate God's ahava by showing ahava for others. This is the idea underneath the famous line, you shall ahava your neighbor as yourself. And so at the end of the day, all of this is rooted in God's own eternal ahava. Like we read in the New Testament letter of 1 John, we love because God first loved us. And that's the Hebrew word, ahava. So over the last two weeks, we spent some time looking at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict through biblical themes. And some of the themes that we've considered are land and covenant and power and oppression. This morning, we're going to wrap up the series by looking at the situation through the theme of love for neighbor and love for enemy. In seeking a Christian perspective on this current conflict, I think we have to consider what it means when the Bible tells us to love our neighbor and love our enemy. But before we get there, in case you join us for the very first time um, and don't know the details of what's going on in Israel and Palestine right now, here's a really quick recap, really brief history of what's going on. And so Israel and Palestine have been fighting each other for the last 70 years over land. It gets, it's a little deeper than that, but that's just the, the, base, the basic understanding of what's going on. So before 1948, um, Israel was not a country, but there was a lot of support um, for creating a national Jewish homeland, especially after the Holocaust, after 6 million Jewish people were killed uh, in World War II. And the powers at, the, at, the, at that time that be decided to divide Palestine's land to create Israel, primarily because historical Israel used to exist there. And since then, after Israel's creation of being a country in 1948, there have been many wars, many conflict, including the most recent one that sparked our desire to talk about this during service. And so on October 7th of last year, Hamas, which is a Palestinian political, religious, and terrorist group, launched a surprise on attack on Israel, killing over a thousand Jewish people. And Israel soon after declared war on Hamas. And 
Since the war has begun, many countries have begun to get concerned about Israel's extreme actions um, in their war against Hamas has unfortunately also impacted many Palestinian civilians. Uh, while most, uh, most of the world is concerned, um, U.S. is in support of Israel and most of American evangelical, evangelical Christians support Israel. Um, evangelical Christians are a tribe that we belong to. And so I'm not saying that River Life or you necessarily um, agree with what's going on, but again, the general trend is that people who believe kind of the same thing that we believe in are in full support of Israel and what they're doing. Um, unfortunately, at least in my opinion, many American evangelical Christians are in support of Israel solely based on a literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, which says this, uh, I will bless I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And this was, a, this was part of the Abrahamic covenant that God made to Abraham. God promised Abraham that Abraham would receive land and that anyone who blessed Abraham would be blessed. Anyone who curses Abraham would be cursed. And so America has taken upon themselves to understand Genesis 12, 3 very literally. And like, we have to support Israel in whatever they do. We have to support Israel no matter what. Uh, or else we won't receive God's blessing. We'll receive God's curse. And so that is the basis of a lot of evangelical American, uh, American evangelicals. That's, a lot of, that's their basis of supporting Israel. And while the Bible does say that, it also has many other things to say that I think as Christians, if we are, if we are followers of Jesus, I think we need to consider it. So it's not to say that we ignore Genesis 12.3, but I think we have to take into consideration Genesis 12.3 and the other things that Jesus say. We've explored complex dynamics about this conflict. We've considered how we might respond. We've even thought about what we can do when some of these dynamics show up in our own lives. Because again, what's happening in Israel and Palestine in small ways can show up in our lives as well too. While a portion of our Christian brothers and sisters believe it's a simple decision of supporting one side over the other, I don't think it's that simple. Sometimes things are a bit more nuanced, a bit more complex, and we need to see the different layers at hand uh, through our biblical understanding to determine what God wants us to do in the world. And again, if there are things that apply to our lives, what God wants to do in our lives. And so again, like I mentioned, yes, the Bible does say to bless Israel. And it also say, says in passages like Matthew verse 5 through 9, that we should be peacemakers. The Bible also talks about issues of justice, mercy, and oppression, which a lot of people are concerned about regarding Israel's action, that they are overstepping um, war against Hamas, but they are oppressing the Palestinian people. Specifically in Exodus chapter 23, verse 9, God tells his people not to oppress others because they know what it's like to be oppressed because they were once oppressed by Egypt. If the majority of Christians believe Jewish people have a divine right to live on Israel based on Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I think it's fair to say that, th that they also have a responsibility to Exodus 23, verse 9, that they aren't supposed to oppress others because they too know what it's like to be oppressed. So far throughout this series, I've argued that if we accept a literal interpretation of blessing Israel by supporting them in whatever they do, even if it's questionable, I don't think we can ignore what other Bible passages have to say. And so today, 
we're going to wrap up our series and we're going to dive into one of those themes that we can't ignore, and that's love for the neighbor and love for the enemy. So this concept of loving your neighbor is widely regarded as a golden rule to life. Many ethnicities, many religions, many cultures, and when I say culture, I'm not saying, you know, I'm, I'm saying ethnic cultures, but I'm just saying, you know, just different subcultures, like, you know, like, like the skaters and the goths and the punks and the hunters and the fishers. There, there is a, you know, under every culture, there's a version of love your neighbor, do to others as you'd want to do to yourself. Judaism and Christianity, specifically these two religions, they both draw from the Old Testament. Uh, and in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, this is what it says. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's a very direct command from the Bible um, that, that we draw to. It's a direct command that the Jewish people draw to um, in, their, in, in their version of the Bible, the Torah, which is, again, our Old Testament. So this was a commandment that God had originally given, given to the Israelites so that they could be holy. Um, the whole context of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, was that there was a rift in their relationship with God. They had just completed building the tabernacle, a tent created for God to dwell with them, to live with them. But before building this tabernacle, while Moses was at Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, the Israelite had constructed a golden calf to worship instead of, of worshiping God. And so Leviticus is a book full of God's instructions on rituals, roles, responsibilities uh, for the Israelites to follow so that they could be holy, so that they could be in God's holy presence. And so a part of Living a holy life for the Israelites meant they needed to honor God and they needed to honor others. So God provides four different verses in Leviticus 19 to instruct the Israelites how they should relate to one another. And so we find this in verses 13, 15, and then 17 and 18. This is what they say. 13, it says, do not defraud or rob your neighbor. That was one way of showing love to the neighbor. 15, it says, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Again, that was another way to show love to the neighbor. Verse 17, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. And then 18, I read this earlier, but this is what it says. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So each one of these verses offers instructions on how the Israelites are to treat their neighbor. So it's very clear that loving their neighbor has been a part of their religious life. But a common question that often comes up in the Bible, maybe even among us, is this. Who is my neighbor? Who do I consider is, who, who do I consider my neighbor? Who is, who is that neighbor? Is it the person who literally lives next door to me? Or is it a broader view like how Mr. Rogers, back on PBS, how Mr. Rogers uses his neighbor to describe a larger community connected by similarities? In Luke chapter 10, verse 29, what Choi read earlier, we find a religious expert asking Jesus to interpret what it meant when he said to love your neighbor. If we take 
the four verses that we read in Leviticus, it appears that neighbors, someone within our community who is like you or, or like them, like the Israelites. In verse 17 of Leviticus 19, it says a fellow Israelite is the neighbor. And in Leviticus 19:18, it says the neighbor is anyone among you people. So there's hints that it's close in proximity, close in vicinity. Similarly, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46 through 47, when Jesus talks about this, Jesus uh, talks about Leviticus 19 as well, too, and points out that a neighbor is commonly understood as someone of your own. And so verses 46 and 47 says, if you love those who love you, and so again, someone who's familiar with you, who loves you, or if you greet your own people, someone, again, in close proximity, And so these concepts of neighbor led some to believe that the Jewish understanding of neighbor was very narrow, that was limited to someone who's like you. Um, Doing some research, I found that that's not the Jewish understanding of neighbor. And so according to one rabbi, uh, Rabbi W. Gunther Plott, he offers his perspective regarding who a neighbor is. And this is what he has to say. Some Christians have also tried to show that the saying of Jesus is more truly universal and inclusive than that of Leviticus. And he's talking in light of a neighbor. They argue that neighbor in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 means a fellow Israelite, which is true enough. But they apparently overlook the commandment of verse 34, which requires us to show the same love to a foreigner resident in the land. There is no evidence that Jesus had a broader outlook, and he references Matthew chapter 15, verse 26. And so Rabbi here is absolutely correct. If we read further on in Leviticus chapter 19, we do find that the definition of a neighbor is expanded more to, than, to, to just a person who looks like you, who's a fellow Israelite. In our cases, it expands more to the, our neighbors more than just the fellow Hmong person or, or, or the person who lives next door to us. And so in verses 33 to 34 in Leviticus, this is what it says. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. So God expected the Israelites to treat the foreigners the same as the native-born. The Israelites were not supposed to show favor for one over the other. They were expected to show the same kind of love to both the native and the foreigner and to treat them both as neighbors. An essential tenet of Judaism and Christianity is that all humanity, all of us, all of your neighbors who live in your neighborhood, all the people that you go to school with, all the people that you work with, all the people who live in Minnesota, all the people who live in the world is created in God's image. Therefore, the definition of neighbor encompasses not just those in close proximity, but all of humanity. Now, if we take into account to love our neighbor, to love the stranger, this would be a great solution. But the reality is we've gone so far past that. The Israelis, the Palestinians, the Americans, whoever's in the mix of this conflict aren't just neighbors anymore. They aren't even strangers anymore. They become enemies. And while it can be challenging to love a stranger, it can feel impossible to love an enemy. I have a very difficult time loving my enemies. But of course, this is something that Jesus talks about. 
Jesus challenges us that when we love others who are like us, it doesn't reflect who God is in our life. And earlier I referenced Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus offers this illustration to explain what God's love looks like. And so this is what he says regarding God's love. He, speaking about God, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So here Jesus differentiates his love from the world's love, that his love encompasses all, both the evil and the good, the righteous and the unrighteous. That even in the simple things of receiving sunshine and rain, the basic elements that we need to life, that God allows the evil and the good, the righteous and the unrighteous, to experience those love of his. And so loving those who look and act like you, loving those who reflect you, is very normal. So that was what Jesus was trying to say. Loving others is very normal. But loving those who are like you and loving those who are unlike you, who are different from you, is godly. So Jesus offers this concept of loving neighbor and loving enemy, which I think we have to consider as we wrap up today's series about Israel and Palestine, the conflict that's going over there. While there seems to be a universal agreement to treat others like how you treat yourself, most other people would be very hesitant to love their enemies. And some quick searches that I did about how others view Jesus' command to love enemies, specifically th those of different religions, some considered irrational, some considered uh, maybe even irresponsible. Others say it's impossible, and then others say just unrealistic. But here was Jesus' take on it. I mentioned earlier how an expert in the law asked Jesus to define who was his neighbor. And earlier, Chor read in scripture reading the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is Jesus' perspective on what it means to love the neighbor and the enemy. Let me summarize it for us. So there was an expert of the law who seeks to figure out who his neighbor is so he can determine if he's fulfilled the command or not. And so he does this by distinguishing who is and who isn't his neighbor. For the expert, his responsibility um, is to love others. For the expert of the law, his responsibility was to love others. Uh, sorry, let me say it again. For the expert, his responsibility to love others was reserved for those who were just a part of his community, to love other people who look like him. But Jesus offers uh, the parable to, in response. And these are four characters in the parable that he mentions. The first is the man who's attacked by robbers and left for dead on the side of the road. Next is a priest, and then, then we get a Levite, and then finally we get a Samaritan. Priests and Levites came from the same tribe of people. They all came from the tribe of Levi. And priests were qualified individuals from the tribe of Levi who led the religious ceremonies, who led the rituals like offering sacrifices for people. While all priests came from the tribe of Levi, 
not every person in the tribe of Levi who was called a Levite, not every Levite were priests. And so every priest came from the tribe of Levi, but not every Levite was a priest. Instead, the Levites, the people who were part of the tribe of Levi, um, Levites, they had a significant role in supporting the priests. And so then again, they didn't lead some of these things, but they would help the priests lead some of them. And so they assisted the priests with ceremonies. They would clean up. They would maintain the worship space. They even taught the law to others. But again, the priests were the ones who led all of it. Both priests and Levite were unique because they were considered to be those who were set apart to do God's work. So in some ways, they were seen to be more godly than the rest. They had a responsibility to help direct others to be more godly. And they were supposed to be the good guys in the story. They were supposed to be the good guys in this parable. They were the ones who were supposed to help the guy who got robbed and beaten. But neither one of them did. It's the equivalent of me, and then it's the equivalent of another ministry leader ignoring someone in need. And then all of a sudden, we get someone else, the unexpected person, someone else, come and, and help the one person in need. And so for me, growing up, like, the, the view that I had about religion was that Christian, you know, Christian Hmong people are good, and then shaman Hmong people are, aren't good. And so that's kind of the, 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 the narrative that I saw growing up. And so if, if you can relate in some ways, it's like, you know, we're called to do good, but we see someone in need, we pass by them. And then, you know, someone like a, a, a shaman folk sees the same person and they help them. And so that's kind of in our context. But for the Jewish people, we get the Samaritan who enters the story and the Samaritan was not a neighbor. Samaritans were seen as rebels. They were seen as renegades who disobeyed God's law. They worshiped God from a different place from the Jews. They didn't worship at the temple where everyone worshiped. They were once Jews, but they were seen as sinners who abandoned the faith because they had a different understanding of who God was. They had different theology. They married outside the ethnic culture, making them unclean and half-breeds. Samaritans and Jewish people were openly hostile towards each other. And we see glimpses of this in John chapter 4 when Jesus approaches a Samaritan woman for water and the woman responds to Jesus asking him, why are you associating with me? We aren't supposed to associate. Samaritans were seen as the enemy. So when Jesus introduced Samaritan into the story as the one who came to rescue the man who was robbed and beaten, everyone was shocked. Not only did the Samaritan rescue the man, but he also took him to an inn, gave the innkeeper enough money to cover two months' stay so that the man could recover. It was absolutely shocking to the people who heard this parable. No such thing would ever happen, especially between Jews and Samaritans. They were enemies. The point that Jesus was trying to make in this parable was that love for your neighbor isn't motivated by our definition of who our neighbor is. Love for our neighbor is motivated by our compassion. One of my favorite Christian thinkers, and I've mentioned him a couple of times, Sky Jatani offers this perspective from his daily devotion about understanding the, the parable of the, uh, the, the Good Samaritan. This is what he says. The story forces us to consider the modern-day priests and Levites in our own culture. Religious people who use the appearance of devotion to God as an excuse for not showing compassion to those in need. 
I was disheartened by a recent conversation with a pastor who reported his church members objected to the church's plan to send relief funds and supplies to Middle Eastern refugees. Such aid, they said, was the first step toward the resettlement of Muslim refugees in their community. In other words, a desire to protect their faith was the excuse for not practicing their faith. Like the priest and Levite, however, I suspect the real cause was a tragic lack of compassion. Here's a simple rule of thumb. If your faith in Christ stops you from helping others, you're doing it wrong. I think this is absolutely why we have to consider the biblical theme of loving your neighbor and enemy as we talk about Israel and Palestine. If we go by, this is what Genesis chapter 12, 3 verse says, this is what the verse in Genesis 12, 3 says, that we're supposed to support Israel no matter what, and it stops us from having compassion on Palestine. I think there's something wrong there, especially, again, with the questionable things that Israel are doing. If evangelical Christians believe they have to support Israel, again, because of their simple devotion to the Bible, but overlook showing compassion to Palestine, again, who is need, again, I think there's something wrong. I think it has to be a both and. Skyj Tani continues with this. This is what he continues to say. Jesus' lesson about the parable here continues with this. Jesus' lesson is critically important. Love is determined by our identity, not the identity of the person we encounter. Like the legal expert, we are asking all sorts of boundary questions. Whom should the Christian business owners serve? What kind of people should Christians welcome? What groups should Christian help? These questions all focus on the identity of the other person or group. Regardless of the other person's identity, when determining whom to love, we ought to focus on a different question. What kind of person has Christ called me to be? And I agree. I think we should be asking this question as we think about how we should respond to the war. Should we support Israel because the majority of evangelical Christians are, or should we be living out our lives reflecting what kind of person Christ has called us to be? Jesus has called us to be peacemakers. He's called us to care for the oppressed. He's called us to be compassionate to our neighbors and to be compassionate to our enemies. So this morning, I want to invite you to take a moment And think about how you can be compassionate to others. Whether it's the Israelis, the Palestinians, whether it's your own Israeli or Palestinian in your own life, the enemies that you have in your life. Take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit how you can be compassionate to them. How can you demonstrate your love like the Samaritan to both the neighbor and the enemy? And then in a little bit here, I'll lead us into communion as we reflect on this a little bit more. So take a minute, take a, you know, take a, little, a little bit of time, consider how can you be compassionate to others? How can you demonstrate your love to both neighbor and enemy?